Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route to the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. I must be getting lazy or complacent in my aging self because I found another co-host today. Somebody that I thought I could just sit back and coast, coming oh. to us from southeast Colorado, the always reserved, rarely sharing an opinion, news director at KBLJ, Ann Boswell. Hi, Ann. Good, good morning. You, do you think you're just going to coast through this? You I and, am. You and, Pat, you and Pat McGee, my co-host, must, must know each other. I'm going to just sit here and run the buttons. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yeah. That's good. And. If you need a job. I, I don't collect an unemployment check from the government, so yes, I do need a job. <laughs> All right. And That's our good. wonderful That's featured good. guest, 83 years young, still passionate about water, Dr. Charles Leaf, a, hy- a hydrologist by choice, Charles, or did you lose a bet? <laughs> no, I went into it blind. <laughs> what? I loved water. But I don't know how to swim yet. You don't know how to swim? Not yet. <laughs> or are you taking lessons? No. <laughs> you know the best way to I learn to swim, gonna... Charles, is just throw you out in the middle hey. and see what happens. That's what they tell me. <laughs> I could teach him. I'm from northeast Oklahoma originally. we got lots of water there. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually... Dr. Leaf, this came about because Anne lives in a place where there is no water, and so she wanted to talk to somebody that knew something about water. <laughs> well, we, uh, we've had our share of droughts here, too. It's been awfully bad and awfully smoky. <laughs> yeah, we've been right. getting the remnants of your smoke here. Why don't you take us back to the beginning? How and what did you start doing from a hydrological point? Well, I'm a native Coloradoan, and I was born out east of Denver on the old Rocky Mountain Arsenal, if you uh, remember that. Um, the Army came along in, at the beginning of World War II and told us they needed our farm to fight the war. So we left, and I grew up in the suburb of uh, what's now Commerce City. Went to the University of Denver and got a degree in civil engineering and uh, happened to take a field trip up north to CSU, which was Colorado A&M College at that time. And I run across an old hydraulic engineer by the name of Ralph Parshall. He's the one who invented the Parshall flume that is used all over the world now. And that got me going. So I came after my bachelor's degree. I went up to CSU and got my advanced degree. And then I went to work for the U.S. Forest Service, the research branch. And uh, that's the beginning of my story. Yeah, I got A&M. You, you 
took me back to a very wonderful day in my speaking career, Charles. I was asked to come and speak. I was just trying to, I, was, I stumbled because I was trying to think of what year that was. It was about 10 years ago they had a major anniversary celebration of Colorado A&M. And they had their old original colors, the green, and, and everything. It was just a wonderful day, and it was the Ag Appreciation Day. I wonder how many people in Colorado know it used to be Colorado A&M. I, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. That had to be 10 years ago, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They didn't win the football game, if that's any reminder of what day it was. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, heaven. <laughs> We had to go there. Yeah, it's yeah. not like it's not like you have an allegiance to Colorado State, Ann. No, I, I don't. It's yeah. just, it's just funny. It's like you know, men in football. It's always going to circle back around to it, right? Uh, no, I'm not that way. I, I'm not. I, okay. my, my world doesn't revolve around football. It just so happens that my most memorable experience at Colorado State was the day they were celebrating being Colorado A and M. So when did water become the real fight in Colorado? It became the real fight when it, uh, um, I would say, when we became a state back in the 1800s. (laughs) To make sense out of water, I had to go back, way back into uh, the early days. Because we have an issue here. We have big government. Mm-hmm. We have a private sector with water rights. The first water users in Colorado were the miners. That was about 50, I believe. And uh, they developed a the prior appropriation system uh, along with other people in the western states. And... Uh, in Colorado, a water right, which is adjudicated by the state according to the prior appropriation doctrine, is a property right. Big government is has been in a constant tug-of-war with private sector water rights ever since all oh, the Reclamation Act. The Reclamation Act occurred in about 1903, and I was a brainchild of Teddy Roosevelt, who also developed the National Forest System. We'll get into that later, Mm -hmm. if you want to. But uh, we had the Reclamation Act, which uh, was justified for irrigation purposes. And we know a lot of the big projects, and Colorado has several, so does Wyoming, all over the West. Huge projects that uh, enable the government to control a lot of water. Along with the the, uh, Bureau of Reclamation who operated these projects came the Flood Control Act and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which can water in huge amounts on the major river basins for navigation and power. It's interesting to know that the Bureau, even though they 
control all the water tributary to the major river basins in the United States. It's, uh, it's interesting to know that they have commitments to flows in the Mississippi and Missouri river basins, as do the Corps of Engineers. Now, along with the, those operational agencies at that time came along the uh, U.S. Forest Service, which I mentioned previously, and they're the management agency. Now, the important ingredient here is water in Colorado as well as other western states. Their mandate was to do two things. One of them is to create and maintain a dependable source of timber. And the other was to maintain uh, favorable conditions of water flow. I mentioned I went to work for the Forest Service about the time that uh, there was a lot of good research coming out of that agency on how to manage forests to maintain those two mandates. And we developed a lot of techniques and research to manage uh, the forest, create age diversity, and make them healthy again. Because even at that time, most of the national forests were what we call over-mature and uh, in some cases decadent. Mm -hmm. The trees were on the order of 300 or more years, years old, and they were susceptible to beaver attack. Uh, Charles, and, Charles, uh, if I can interrupt you because I have to go to a break, but w what year are you talking about there? Uh, about 1970, or in, uh, between 1960 and 70. And here we are in 2020, and it appears that we're learning the hard way that resources need to be managed. And Boswell, Trent Luce, Dr. Charles Leaf, my guest, we will take a break. Excuse me, and our guest. We'll be back with the second leg of the journey <laughs> roll out after this. <laughs> the Stand at Paxton County on Netflix. Have you watched that yet? And you've not reported. Have you watched The Stand at Paxton County? It illustrates the challenge. We're talking about water challenges here today, but we also have a challenge in owning animals. And the stand of Paxton County brings that to your living room or wherever you watch watch Netflix in living color. Check it out. The stand at Paxton County on Netflix. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Luce alongside my co-host of the day, of the last day of September. You're never going to be on this program again in September, Ann Boswell. Not, not this year because we're wanting 2020 to get out of here. Um, you're not going to be on this year or this month? Month. I mean, every month that we have down, right, is another month of 2020. Oh, right, right. I don't another. think I'm alone in uh, saying I will not be sad to see it go. You're the first person I've ever had to say that. Sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and people who are regular listeners to KBLJ, they're like, they can't really be Ann Boswell. She's sitting there so quietly. Sitting there quietly listening. I'm listening. Right. Do you know yeah. you learn more with your mouth shut? Uh, 
Thank you, Mom. <laughs> Thank you, Leona Luce. I appreciate you reminding me of that. Yeah, you sound like my mother okay. now. Dr. Charles Leaf, our guest today, and it, it, Chuck said a thing or two that surely prompted some interest. It did, you know, because I, I uh, have a lot to learn about water, I, I feel like, because the history behind why we have such water issues in Colorado is kind of important to know because you don't really understand what is happening now and what will happen in the future without studying history. I think we know that, right? Yeah, spot on. Well, uh, Chuck, the interesting thing, Ann and I, I, I grew up west central Illinois, Quincy, Illinois, seven miles from the Mississippi River. And uh, my family, I lost my father three years ago, but my family still farms the same land. The first loose came to you from Germany in 1832. Uh, but like northeast Oklahoma, all of Illinois, we try to figure out how to get the water out of our fields to the river as soon as possible. And mm-hmm. what you've spent your entire life on is how to manage the water that we can get to the farm or the mine or whatever the case may be. What a difference in all in one country, Chuck. That's right. There's a very big difference. One thing we discovered is with correct forest management practices, we not only maintained favorable conditions of water flow, but we increased water yields. By about 30%. And we were all set to apply these practices because it was rather a critical time. But uh, the Forest Service, the agency that was responsible for this, made a turn. Mm-hmm. And they got away from any kind of forest management in favor of a lot of environmental issues as well as of the big push for recreation, which is very, very big today. Basically, mills were shut down, and uh, the economies of uh, smaller towns up where the timber was uh, went flat. And uh, 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 Sorry, Dr. Leaf, if I could interrupt for a minute, because I have a visual I wanted to share with you or with our listeners. Um, Hank Vogler from Nevada lives in uh, White Pine County, Nevada. He gets just a tick more than Ann does in southeast Colorado, maybe 6.6 <laughs> inches a year. And mm-hmm. he, he's mostly on federal land, Dr. Leaf, but he has two sections that he owns that his allotments are tied to, okay? And he, so these two sections, 640 acres, he went in and he cleared the pinyon and juniper trees from these sections. And springs started coming. And prior to that, it was just dry. And, and the reason mm-hmm. I share that is when you're talking about management of the forest, people always forget. I don't think they have any awareness to how much water each tree uses. And when you manage the trees, you actually create, a, allow for more of the water that's naturally there to get to other places. So you not only improve the aspect of the health of the forest from a uh, reduced fire standpoint and fuel load, you also make the water that's available to be used in other ways to improve the planet and improve human lives. That's interesting because we uh, are in the interior forest and there's two components that are critical to evapotranspiration. One of them is wind and the other one is interception. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, we we discovered that by manipulating the forest cover and making small patches, not very large clear cuts, which have been uh, at issue in years past, with small patch cuts where the openings that you create become snow traps and increase the amount of snow that is increased as a result of this aerodynamic void that you create. And uh, coupled with the uh, lack of vegetation in the opening, you increase runoff consistently uh, in a water yield improvement alternative by about 30%. And because the trees grow very slowly up in the interior forest, subalpine zone, as I call it, which is a snow zone, uh, the water yield is increased immediately and can persist for as long as 80 years. Hmm. And we got, uh, or if they've not been killed by beetles in the experimental forest, Fraser experimental forest, where I work, uh, you can see some of those cuttings that are still producing increased water yields. They were cut way back in the 50s. And so uh, the timing, and like you were saying, uh, Trent, uh, is changed and is changed markedly. And this is high-quality water, which is available for such uses as recreation and municipal purposes. But the Forest Service, as I said, back in the 70s, quit. They quit cutting timber in the uh, interior uh, forest as well as in uh, in uh, on the west coast and uh, in the in the central Rockies. I just picked up a copy of uh, the fence post. You probably get that, don't you, Trent, in Nebraska? People do, but Charles, I write for the High Plains Journal, so we can't talk about Rachel Gable on this program. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. But, you know, I think that's interesting what he was saying about not cutting the timber in the forest, and now we have all these forest fires, and that cutting a tree actually is, is is being good, I guess, being a good steward of the environment, right? Because you're you're... I don't know. I, that's the way I'm seeing it right now. And provides an 80-year lifespan for making it happen. Mm-hmm. That's a long yeah. time, Charles. you know how long 80 years is? <laughs> I think he has an idea. <laughs> he identifies with yeah. being a 60-year-old. There you go. <laughs> So what in, in the 70s, you're telling us, is when the pressure came to stop managing the forest. Was it the the protest of the 60s that brought that about, or what was the impetus behind stop managing forest? Well, I look at it in two dimensions. Uh, day to day, there was a lot of hullabaloo about logging and the de- detrimental effects, which research, research showed otherwise. But that was a factor as well as uh, a persistent plan between the uh, government to 
bring on the new world order, I guess I might as well say it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at least we got through that phase, Charles. <laughs> I'm kidding. Just say it. Get just, it out there, right? Just saying, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. yeah. In this article I'm quoting from, it says, Decades of environmental debate and regulatory red tape fuel the fires in western states. Mm-hmm. The whole ball of wax as far as surrogate issues that have been brought up uh, in the Clean Water Act and in the Flood Control Act and in the Endangered Species Act and on and on and on are part of it. As a result of that, there's uh, special interest groups, NGOs as we call them, non-government agencies put pressure on the government agencies to quit, and they quit. And as a result, we had unmanaged tree growth. We talked a few minutes ago about a rapid transpiration. We have more trees growing up there than they ever had. We've ever had uh, before even the colonization of this country. Uh, Charles, Charles, I I res. I regret this, but my clock says I have to interrupt you. It's roll route. Dr. Charles Leak and Boswell, my guest. More after this. Neogen is providing a look at the genomics that make a difference in breeding animals. You can look at plants, but Neogen is all about animals. Let's identify the genomics that really lead to profitability. Many of the cattlemen that I'm talking to are using these genomic tests to find out the stability of the dams. Well, the sire's daughter's stability because what leads to profitability more than keeping a cow for years and years? Eight, nine, ten, twelve years or more. Maybe twenty. Twenty might be too far. Doesn't matter. You get the data. You decide which bulls to use, boars or chickens, whatever the case may be. Maybe even your pet. Details and shining a light on your genetic future at Nijin.com. Welcome back to Roll Route, Trent Luce, alongside my co-host for the day, the last day of September, Ann Boswell, coming to us from southeast Colorado, uh, Dr. Charles Leaf, our guest. He did misspeak a little bit, Ann. Did you hear him say a, a moment ago we were talking about evapotranspiration? We were not talking about that. He was. We, he uh, was, because that's all... a big sciencey word that I, <laughs> you know, that, that's why he's our expert. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I believe that's the first time I've ever used it in a sentence, Charles. So thank you for increasing my vocabulary. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, so let's just fast forward. I, I love laying the groundwork with the history. And you kind of moved us there with uh, quoting the fence post, which is illegal on this program. But anyway, uh, <laughs> where, where are we today? What, what's the biggest battle in terms of water? and property rights in your mind today in Colorado? Well, we're at a, we're at a very difficult time. Uh, the government has been consistent in its direction, and there's more and more pressure being put on water, uh, not only for uh, these uh, more urban-oriented uses like municipal water supply and industrial water supply and and recreation. Uh, Irrigated agriculture uses about 70% 
of the water generated from snowmelt in the mountain country, for example. And that's where our water supply comes. It comes from snowmelt in the subalpine. The uh, environmental legislation is carrying forward. Uh, we still have the Clean Water Act, and uh, there's the pressure by the government uh, to uh, quantify and tag waters of the United States, which is part of the Clean Water Act, which puts this water under extremely tight control. There's several issues have come up besides the environmental ones, and one of them is well augmentation in the lower South Platte basin, where the argument is that wells have uh, depleted the groundwater and injured senior surface water rights that we talked about, which is true, but it's been way overblown like so much in our culture now, and uh, it's pressure on the farmers and their private property rights. Uh, the uh, small communities that support that are supported by agriculture are receiving pressure today from the Clean Water Act because they have to uh, use high-tech uh, treatment for sewage and also their water supply. Uh, one popular method, which is the most extensive one is uh, reverse osmosis, another complicated couple of words. Uh, this creates a brine, uh, besides being very expensive, and uh, this brine is hazardous waste, and you can imagine the trouble that these communities are having in dealing with that problem. Uh, Charles, can we, can we, can we spend a little more time there? You're saying that the, the process of reverse osmosis has, uh, an end result that causes a challenge for communities in the brine? Yes. Can you take that a step farther for me? They, uh, if the, we, the water that we use here in the lower basin has a high content of dissolved solids. And okay. The only feasible way to uh, get that water to the standards that the government has imposed on these communities uh, are very high. And uh, as a result, uh, the third of the water that is treated results as brine, hmm. which is a hazardous waste and has to be disposed of accordingly. Most of these uh, cities, uh, I can mention, say Sterling, for example, has an RA treatment process where they inject the brine deep into the crust of the earth. And that's a very, very expensive process. And as I understand it, uh, not of them are, uh, not all of these uh, projects are working out. So what do you do? You, in order to meet the standards and regulations of the Clean Water Act, you create for yourself another problem, and there doesn't seem to be any end to it.
Yeah, because Mother Nature's answer to toxicity in water is dilution. Dilution is always the solution. So what you're tell, telling us is they remove the the solids and one-third mm-hmm. of the total water then ultimately becomes a toxic problem that has to go somewhere. That's right. I never thought about that. Well, yeah. So there's all kinds of pressure against the water. And, of course, uh, the issue at hand that everybody is uh, coping with uh, as we speak is the issue of wildfire. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a very bad one, and it won't go away. And uh, it was interesting watching the debates last night that the issue of force management came up, so it's on the national boiler, and uh, we'll see what happens. Too, too bad it wasn't on the national agenda with management prior to Mother Nature implementing a little correction. That's right. That's for sure. You know, but, and Charles is bringing up something that I think most people just don't think about. They think about fire, they hear about fire, they think about forest management, but they don't think about the whole water aspect and how all of that's affected. It, it's all tied together. It's called the cycle of life, and people, that's where we got to have the education. Well, totally, and that's kind of why I was listening to some of this. It's kind of interesting. You know, we've had a lot of water issues in southeast Colorado as well. It's not just the one part of the state. We've got our own independent issues as well. I remember covering a story just not too long ago, I guess, about the Arkansas Valley Water Conduit, that they were going to bring the water from Pueblo out to southeast Colorado along Highway 50 to some of these small communities. And, and you know, it is all tied together because water, as we've said, this whole program is a life source. I mean, this is, it's very sciencey, but, you know, it, it comes down to being a very basic thing. When I learned that my brain was 75% water, I thought I should irrigate that thing. <laughs> will you let me know how that goes, will you? Well, I drink a gallon every day, which means I do a lot of, I, there's two things I do a lot. Yeah, I, 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 I know where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know where you're going. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you Le- go wherever you want, being a country boy. <laughs> yeah, you don't know where I'm going. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Literally and figuratively. Charles, yeah. we're going to change the topic here. Um, not change the topic, change Anne's direction. You know, the one statement, and I get into this argument so much, particularly with activists who want to control the water, and they want to minimize the use of animal products because... Cows drink too much water. We have the same amount of water on the planet that we had when Jesus walked the planet. And it's just maybe it's not located in the same spot. Maybe it's got some salt in it. But we're not short of water. We're short of water in places that we want it. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. It's uh, it's interesting uh, with all of the hullabaloo that's associated with water, people get the idea, and I think the government pushes that idea that they're creating more water. Well, that's not true, as you just said. There's another aspect to this, and that's economics. 
we're spending billions fighting these fires, and it's like fighting the war, and we have casualties. It's killing a lot of people, damaging a lot of property. And it's a result of a two generations now almost of neglect and malfeasance as far as our uh, management agencies are concerned. This is my opinion. But I was looking into, and I won't name the name of the magazine, an engineering magazine that I get. In fact, on RFD TV, it posts the price of lumber. And did you know that we import about 65% of our softwood from Canada? And some comes from China, as I understand it, and even Russia. I, I did uh, happen to know that. We, uh, this would be enough to... Uh, I, I, sorry to interrupt you, Charles, but I also ironically happen to know that Canada manages one-sixth of the world's fresh water supply. Do you suppose there's a tie between managing the forest and having water supplies available? Go figure. Yeah, very well said. It's, uh, it's interesting to note that the development costs for any kind of forest management would be more than paid for by the value of what we're paying other countries while we let our our forests uh, degenerate and die on the stump mm-hmm. and burn up. As a lifelong scientist, as a hydrologist, it just has to be quite frustrating to you that we talk all we want about science, but at the end of the day, science has little to do with the decisions that are made. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and Charles, before I wind you up into another topic, here's the news. I've got one segment left, so we're going to do that when we come back. And Boswell, my co-host today with Dr. Charles Leaf, an entire life de- dedicated to hydrology. We'll be back with our final segment of Roll Route right after this. Now I'd like to take a moment and talk about utilizing that Neogen technology. What the Lone Creek Cattle Company system has been built around is the Piedmontese cattle because of the myostatin gene. We know through genomic testing that every single calf going through the certified Piedmontese program has the myostatin gene. That's a gene that tells us this beef is going to be tender. All of that work, by the way, was originally done at the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center, Clay Center, Nebraska. And now we know Piedmontese cattle generate tender beef. You, the producer, need to be paid for what it is that you're producing and I'm talking about a premium in tune of 180 and now maybe there's a contract available to you with a 100% AI program for $300 over feeder calf price. You cannot at least look into this. Talk to Marlon Will. He has full details. www.lonecreekcattleco.com Certified Piedmontese Paving Your Future. Welcome back to Rural Routes and Boswell. We are already in the last segment. That's kind of hard to believe, huh? It is. It went so fast. It has. Well, it's not over yet, but I mean yeah. so far. I did hear myself misspeak, though, because I said at the end of the last segment, Dr. Charles Leaf, our guest today, has dedicated his entire life. He's still got a lot of life left. Maybe he's going to change his career path. Well, I mean, people do that. You know, there are studies that show that people oftentimes have two, three, four careers. After 83? 
Sure, why not? <laughs> it's all, Charles, you're only as old as you think you are. That's what Ann and I have to say. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so how do we, let's just follow up on where we ended there. How do we get this science to really matter? You know, with the advent of the computer, people forget that the world existed before 1989. There's a lot of research that has been done. Some of the world-class research uh, has been done by the agency that I've been uh, putting down here based on my experience. Uh, that was published in the 70s and the 60s, even in the 40s. Watershed management research has been carried on in Colorado, for example, since about 1921 with uh, Carlos Bates' work with watersheds in the Rio Grande Basin. Uh, All of these results are consistent. There's no fake science here. It's documented over a hundred year, 150 years of research now, even all over the world. And uh, we need to we need to consult some of that work, and maybe not use the computer so much in making these management decisions. Uh, and it's just common sense. Some of the best research has been done with very crude and very uh, basic uh, tools. Uh, it's not that that makes makes the result. It's, it's hard work and common sense. And a lot of that is being ignored today, in my opinion. So what I'm taking from your sentiment is that we spend too much time modeling what water effects might be on a computer instead of just getting in the field and actually monitoring them. Right. Uh, I'm a modeler. We uh, That was my project. But I based it on calibration and validation of the models on the early research that uh, I talked about just mm-hmm. a minute ago. Uh Models are fine. They give you they give you an insight into physical processes that you never get otherwise. But remember the old adage: if you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. I'm afraid where most of the models that are used today have not been adequately calibrated nor validated, and that's why we have so much confusion. Yeah. Um, for example, in this pandemic that we're going through. Are we in a pandemic? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they say. Your governor sort of thinks it's a pandemic. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, and I didn't mean to do that. Never yeah. mind. Jury, please disregard that I mentioned the governor of Colorado. Uh, Charles, it would not be appropriate for me to uh, finish this program without sharing the cliff notes that I got from another Chuck, a guy named Chuck Miller, um, who reminds me that Colorado is unique and that it's a state that does not have water coming into it. And that brings about the whole other concept that we haven't really approached. We talked about the NGOs affecting water flow. But then when your water leaves say the Republican River or uh, the Platte River I should say 
one state to the next, that brings about another complication? It sure does. And uh, virtually every river that flows out of Colorado is governed by a camp compact of some kind. And every one of them have, have been to court over issues. And, of course, the biggest one on the table now is the Colorado River Compact again, where they're trying to get more water downstream uh, to fill Lake Mead or keep it full. Mm-hmm. Where's that all going to go? How, how do we steer the ship? Water pun intended. <laughs> well, I... It, uh, the implications of what they're talking about are not good because they can put water rights on the eastern slope under call and require ag, for example, to give up water through the Colorado Big Thompson project, which is a Bureau of Reclamation project, uh, for that purpose. Uh, I think we need to go back to the woods and start managing them and uh, put the streams back to where they were before all this unmanaged tree growth and do the best we can with what's been burned over and put the rest of the forest that we have under management and make our forest healthy again. Charles, if nothing else today, you have given me, and I'm sure Ann and all of the listeners that are not in Colorado, a better appreciation and empathy for the position that you in Colorado have been put in, in that you're not allowed to manage the forest properly to create the amount of water flow that is there to downstream on the snowmelt because we want to not manage and let overgrowth and decadent fuels be there. And at the same time, you have demands out of state demanding more water than ever before. I don't think anybody really had an, even unless you live in Colorado and you live this particular situation, you had an appreciation for that until you create that visual. Right. Uh, interesting. Uh, you mentioned Chuck Miller. I want to put in a plug for private property rights. Years ago, when all of this came flying at us, uh, organized the Property Rights Foundation of the West. You probably heard of it. It was uh, organized by me and Chuck Miller and Vic Quint, as well as some other close friends. And we uh, made contact with the Hages, for example, in their fight with the Forest Service. And... Uh, uh, Kimmy Lewis and her fight with the Army and Fred Kelly Grant. Um, uh, I shouldn't bring well, this up, Charles, but those three friends you just mentioned are no longer with us. Is that right? Yeah, and they, Fred Kelly Grant just passed just a few months ago. But uh, hmm. they dedicated, Hugh Wayne, Wayne Hage and Kimmy Lewis and Fred Kelly Grant dedicated every waking moment to fighting for these property rights. That's right. Yeah. I interviewed Kimmy many times on that, yep. Mm. Kimmy was my representative in Bend County. Oh, super. Yeah, yep. she, she was ours over here in northeastern Colorado, too. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, this is just something that I don't know that I have the answer to, so obviously I want 
the Army Corps of Engineers, which we find them be, being part of the problem rather than the solution more often than not, is part of the United States Army. How did that come to be that the Army Corps of Engineers designing and engineering our waterways is part of the United States military? Yes, that, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, probably was one of the first battle-ready groups in this country. They've got a, a very big track record. I recall when I first started my career, I went out to uh, Portland for a seminar put on by the Army, and uh, they they fought World War II and came home and uh, were given the job of building a system of dams along the Columbia River and other big basins. They did the research in about five years, and that's been documented. Very good research. Some of this common sense stuff that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. They built those dams, and uh, they, uh, if channeled in the right direction uh, can do some great stuff. But so much of what we do these days in our culture has been politicized, and that causes the problems that you were talking about. I suppose the original concept was that our, our rivers were such a vital part of our national security that it only made sense in the early days that these rivers maintain a proper flow just so that we could protect ourselves. That's right. Hmm. And it has to do with the geopolitics, and I mentioned the New World Order. We didn't talk about it, but you probably heard much about Agenda 2030, mm -hmm. and all of this is part of the bowl of oatmeal that we've been served. Well, all of those acts that you mentioned erode my property rights, everyone's property rights, not just mine, and it fills right into that one world order you speak of. But, Dr. Charles Leaf, we're in the last minute. What's your profound wisdom to take us home today? Uh, God's in control. We need to understand that. And our core principles and uh, that we wake up every morning to is involved in that. And uh, this is uh, presently at risk, in my opinion, these days. And we need to pray for our country. And, and Bos Boswell, you get the final word. I get the final word? Yeah. I've learned a lot. I have, I have too. <laughs> Just I've like learned, that. I mean, I've learned a ton. I've learned a ton and found ways to explore new avenues. That's what it's about, right? Absolutely, and water is so very important. I say that as I got up this morning and my shower wasn't working correctly. So, see, we, we take so many things for granted, and yet it's it's just, I mean, we wouldn't be here without it. Yeah, and you can live without a shower. You can't live without water. <laughs> That's We've true. successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. My thanks to the co-host, Dan Boswell. Dr. Charles Leaf, our guest. I'm Trent Luce. We're going to continue to talk about water. Trust me, all roads do lead to a roll route. One last time, just want to remind you to check into the opportunities with the certified Piedmontese system. I continue to talk to people that struggle in marketing calves, 
as you're currently marketing them, whatever that system may be. If it's working, just do it. Uh, there's many things that will work for many people. For us, the Certified Piedmontese system has been a tremendous opportunity, and I think you should at least check it out. Utilizing the Neogen technology is bringing everything together, the cycle of life, just like Dr. Charles Leaf has talked about. Neogen.com and Lone Creek Cattle Company, all providing the system. Certified Piedmontese.